great leadership is somebody who knows how to do authoritative and humble in the same minute and somebody who knows how to do credible and approachable in the same minute. And that's why the three seconds is so important for me to go, right now, where am I? Because if I've got too much adrenaline going, I'm going to revert to authoritative. But as that speeds up, the authoritative gets interpreted as aggressive or hostile or even bullying at worst. But if I can manage myself, observe myself, step out of the situation and go, hang on, Alan, just a second, take a breath. When I pause and breathe and take a breath in, that alerts my sympathetic nervous system, which produces alertness. As I breathe out, that activates my parasympathetic nervous system, which creates a state of calm. Now I'm alert, calm, alert, calm with every breath. Breathing is the most underestimated stress reduction tool. And it's so profound, so scientifically validated, and so simple. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Here's today's question. How do you master your state? How do you communicate from a place of stillness and calm, regardless of what's happening around you? Now, we all know the situations that tend to set off our body's alarm system. It could be a fight with a partner, the same old conversation with a member of our team, or getting up in front of a room full of people to speak or make our ideas heard. Now, regardless of the situation, the warning signals tend to be the same. Our heartbeat increases, our breath shortens, our thinking becomes reactive, our responses shift into fight or flight, and our ability to communicate calmly becomes practically non-existent. Well, those were mine anyway, until I found and adopted the tools and the micro practices of my incredible guest today. Alan Parker is a friend, a mentor, and one of the very first people I actually invited onto this podcast over 150 episodes ago. I think it was episode number three, I believe. Now, such is the respect and the admiration I have for this human being as an absolute master in his space. Alan is a microbehavioral scientist, an educator, facilitator, and author. In 2019, he was a recipient of the Order of Australia as part of the Queen's Birthday Honours List for Contribution to Business and Dispute Resolution. He's probably best known in his field as a facilitator of large-scale multi-party negotiations and disputes. Having acted as a moderator for both the United Nations World Investment Forum and the UN Conference on Trade and Development. 
He is also the author of The Negotiator's Toolkit, the bestseller Switch on Your Brain and co-author of The Negotiation Bible Beyond Yes. Now, when you invite Alan into a conversation, it is usually just best to throw out your agenda and follow wherever his instincts want to go. And that is exactly what I did. In this huge, incredible, wildly fluid conversation, we dive into how we can start to better understand and manage our adrenaline and cortisol systems as communicators, especially in high stakes moments. Alan's favorite techniques for preventing our inner alarm system from being triggered in certain situations, keeping our adrenaline and cortisol low and enabling us to stay in a calm and present state. The importance of breathing as a stress reliever. Now I know breathing sounds pretty simple, right? But anyone that's tried to monitor their breath while in fight or flight knows the focus that it takes. How to identify what Alan calls critical choice points in any situation. Now, this one has been a complete game changer for me in my own communication. And finally, why when speaking in front of a large or a small group of people, you should always identify your lighthouses and lean into the friendly eyes. For me, this is a conversation about freedom. Freedom to express yourself clearly and calmly in any situation. Freedom from the unconscious triggers that keep us stuck in fight or flight over and over again and therefore unable to show up at the next level. Freedom to recognize those critical choice points that we constantly have available to us in our lives, our conversations, our relationships and our careers and then choose how we wish to respond. Freedom to essentially own our influence in any given moment. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes. There's a link there and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven very simple core questions that I have found over 20 years in this space to be hands down the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and we will have it in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, caffeine up, cycle on, drive safe and enjoy the wildly incredible mastery of Alan Parker. Welcome to the podcast again, Alan Parker. Such a pleasure to have you here, my friend. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be back. And and I've missed you. I've missed you too. Did you know, and, and I only realised when I was kind of putting my thoughts together for this conversation, that you were the very first Inside Influence podcast episode. I think we're on like 160 now, 170. Oh, you're kidding. You were number one. You were my really? friend. Oh, yep. no. I did not know that. And and I remember I had, because I recorded, I think it was six or eight in order to kick off the first kind of season of the show. This is three, four years ago. And, um, and I had a choice out of those kind of six to eight, which ones I wanted to launch as the very, very first episode, the episode that I was hoping was going to catch people's attention and hold them enough to listen to episode two. You, my friends, were the one 
<laughs> you. That's a lovely, lovely compliment. I can't believe it's taken us, me, this long, this long to have you back. So I want to jump in because the the thing I love about second round conversations, and you and I talk a, a lot, regardless of online, offline, um, is that we can just free flow this one. And there's just a bunch of things that I want to talk about and a bunch of your insights that I want to give to the people that are listening. And you're probably more so, well, you're definitely more so than any other human, someone I have learnt the most about, the most from when it comes to negotiation, when it comes to how you show up, choosing your state, and when it comes to managing conflict, I would go back to your teachings, yeah, more so than any other teachings that I have ever received, both from you directly and in watching you. I want to just start, usually I ask if there's one idea, one idea that's really capturing your attention right now when when it comes to influence, when it comes to how we influence, how we influence ourselves, what would it be? And I would usually give you the choice, but because you're a dear friend, I'm not going to give you the choice this morning. Um, I, I, I want to plug into something we were just talking about. And I stopped you mid-sentence and I said, this is too, this is too valuable to talk about off air. I want to talk about adrenaline and cortisol because you were saying that if there's one thing that globally as a system within organizations, within multi-parties that are trying to come to an agreement on any high stakes conversation, if there's one thing that if we could figure out how to manage it better, would make the biggest amount of difference. And that was how we manage our adrenaline and our cortisol. So can you pick that up for me, pick that thought back up? Just before COVID occurred, um, I had one of those moments where I had to stop and take stock of the world. And I'd heard about COVID. <clears throat> and remember, I've, I lived through the AIDS epidemic and was very involved actively in supporting people through the AIDS process. And I thought to myself, this one is airborne. This is going to be much worse. And I thought to myself, how can I start Alan Parker's life again with more focus on digging for the deep need of what we all need? And I thought to myself, if this thing is airborne and it does take off the way it's being reported it might, the world is going to be different and new at a level never before. And the human being is going to have their description of stress elevating at a level we've not seen before. And I thought, I've got to come up with a way of going way underneath the stress and the stress conversation and way underneath the, the flow on social economic factors. And I've got to get down to what is it that I could contribute to the world that would allow every human being to have better choice about how they experience what they experience. So better choice around how we, how we show up, how we deal with other human beings, how we deal with situations. Yep. And I since, and I'd been doing it before, but since that moment, Julie, I have devoted my entire work and research on what can you and I, or you or I, 
do in this three seconds that will enhance the quality of our being? Another way of saying that is how can you and I snap our finger and be in a physical, mental, emotional state that exquisitely takes care of what's happening right now? That you and I can influence. And I, I coined the phrase, be in three seconds so we can identify critical choice points and activate them. Before you go into that, I think it's worth saying here that the detrimental effect that adrenaline and cortisol has, because what we're talking, and before you get you you go there, because I, I know whatever you've got there is going to be huge for me. Um, I just want to have just just very quickly cover for me what what happens when we let adrenaline and cortisol run the show. Oh, that's, that's my favorite term. Uh, we can't let cortisol run the show. We can't let adrenaline run the show. We can't let both of them run the show. And in it's because we do need adrenaline and cortisol. They, they, they provide us with energy and alertness and they trigger our alert system. So we need them to, to be active and aware. However, like everything, there's, there's too much and there's too little. And the moment, Julie, I describe it, that you and I have a threshold that, you know, the last few days I've had a huge amount of demands on my time and I keep watching myself and going, Alan, you're at your threshold. And that threshold means I notice that I'm thirsty, my mouth dry. I notice that I've been rushing. I notice that I'm making more mistakes when I type. I notice that I'm making more mistakes when I text. I notice that I'm getting to one room to do something and forgot what it was that I went there to do. I forget where I left my car keys. I forget where I left the phone. And when I find the phone, I find that I've got a text that I'm halfway through that I didn't send that I should have sent an hour ago. What I'm noticing when you're talking is that I when I am at that threshold, one of the things that I've noticed, one of the trigger points that catches me where I go, okay, I'm here, is I start, this sounds insane, but I, I start negotiating with myself for water, for water. So I'll think I'm really thirsty. Okay, I finish, like get these two tasks finished and then we can go get a glass of water. Like something basic like water. I start having this running negotiation, this fight or flight in my head where I'm like, no, not now. Not now. We don't have time I've now. Still got, I've, got, I've got to get this thing done. Then the computer bips and, and there's another email. And I, an hour later, realise I still haven't got the water. The human brain must have water. It, its main reason for human beings having stress is dehydration. It's the number one reason. It's the number one reason. If, if I don't have enough water in my system and there's not enough water to carry the oxygen that my brain needs up into my brain and into the brain cell. And when the oxygen is carried by water in blood, the oxygen is delivered into the brain and it combines with glucose and produces energy and a substance called glutamate which is the most active neurotransmitter for alertness and awareness that we have in our system. And glutamate produces 
clearer thought. Now, every time I've used up too much water and the water level in my brain diminishes, glutamate is in less production and clear thought is less available. And what's fascinating about that is when thoughts get less clear, often we, I, me, let's just be clear here, me, turn to, turn to coffee because you're like, I need to think clear, I need, and, you know, coffee is a, is a dehydrating substance. And stimulate adrenaline. Mm. So I want to go back to what you were saying there about this. You have trigger points that you have learned to identify over the years. What, where your cortisol is running, your adrenaline is running, that results in certain behavior that you can pick up on. All right, now we'll go, now we'll get to the meat of it. What's, what's the three seconds? What's the three second turnaround? What's the three seconds? The three seconds, Jules, is that I'm going to bring my attention here and be with you 100%. So my attention is now out on Julie and with Julie. And if I do that often enough and well enough, you and I become one. And connection occurs. But I've got to be in this three seconds for that to happen. For me to be here listening and attending to you with my attention out and listening to every word you ask, and in fact I've just caught that my gesture that I'm doing is exactly the same as your hand position, and when, when I do connection, my mirror neurons, particularly in the frontal lobe of the brain, actually mean that I'm now connected to you and we copy each other. So what's the mechanism there? So right then... You come in with the word, so what's the mechanism there? Now, as a linguist and a neuroscientist, I go, beautiful, Julie, that's the next step. So when you're here with me in the present, you're going to start most of what you say with so, followed by a pause and a breath. And it's, are we, we are recording. Yes, we are. Are we video recording? Uh, this will go out in audio format, but there will be a video um, videos. There tonight. is fabulous because if we watch the video, we'll see that there's mirroring going on with you and me when we connect in the present. And the magical thing that happens when we connect in the present, the mirror neurons occur. We copy each other. You're not going to come up with Julie's comment. You're going to connect to Alan's. And so you come in and go, so, and then you go to ask your question. Now, when you go, so, it indicates to me that you're about to talk about something I just said, because it's linguistically a linker. And then you take a breath in that tiny little pause, which shoves oxygen straight to the brain and transmits glucose into glutamate. And I go, oh, she's listened to me and she wants to talk about what I just said. And now I feel heard and, and appreciated. And now I've got dopamine pumping because I feel rewarded. There's, there's almost a kind of a hack there I'm noticing where let's just use my children so it's the end of the day, you've got, a, you've got a thousand things running in your head, a thousand unfinished tasks, a thousand conversations, some of them went well, some of them could have been better, a thousand results that have been reached or not. And, um, and you sit down and, and the intention is to be present for my children. 
if I am struggling with presence, if my voice, if my internal, well, if my internal monologue, no, internal monkey is a little out of control in that moment, is a way to start to regulate myself, as you said, kind of force yourself to be present for three seconds, listen to somebody and then use the word so. And then this regulation will start kicking in where I regulate, I give you dopamine, you calm, you in turn, because we regulate each other, you in turn calm me and this beautiful um, dynamic starts to occur where we've reset the mechanism and you and I are both in that mechanism together. So I'm not just doing it for me. I'm also doing it for you and you in turn do it for me. I got it. And now, now we've now we've both acknowledged and got excited, and norepinephrine kicked in, which is passion, enthusiasm, and excitement. Great. And and it's it's a it's a scientific biochemical phenomena that we have more choice over than we think. And what happens if you're on your own? That just suddenly occurred to me. It's one thing if you have a ready supply of humans you can go and talk to and reconnect in and move yourself out of cortisol and adrenaline. But if you're on your own. Your questions really us exquisite. <laughs> just. <laughs> if I'm on my own, um, I can turn my monologue into a dialogue. Ooh, that sounds dangerous. Talking to my monkey. Sounds dangerous. The greatest risk to the human race in Alan Parker's perspective is the over-proliferation of monologue between our ears. Monologue produces fear, doubt, neuroses, paranoia, anxiety, panic, and delusion. Flip me to what a dialogue sounds like as opposed to a monologue oh alan ease off just for a second will you what do you think we need to do here may i suggest that you stop and pause and breathe for a moment oh yeah i guess i guess i was a bit out of control wasn't i um actually i'm really thirsty and i need to go to the toilet i hadn't noticed i needed to go to the toilet because i was so rushed and busy. Can you excuse me just for a sec while I go to the bathroom? Now, when I get really agitated and rushed and busy, I actually switch off my internal abdominal system. I actually lose sight of the fact I need to go to the toilet. I don't feel it because the adrenaline's got all the blood pumping in my legs and my arms. But if I can have a chat with myself, the two different parts of me, then we've got something happening. And what if, I'm going to devil's advocate this now. Please do. What if the volume, so, okay, we, we've got one entity in our head that we're listening to, which is the cortisol adrenaline version of events. We split that into, not split it, but we, we find another voice within ourselves to enter into dialogue with that monkey. Let's just call it a monkey. Um. What if the volume of the monkey's voice is still much, much louder, like it's drowning out the volume of that other voice? Oh, it, it, it will be. And let me just watch, do what I think, Julie, could be helpful. Can I get you to notice when I drop my voice that much 
and be that soft and gentle how it's impossible for you to maintain your agitated state. So if I can get that other part of me just to speak really softly and notice what impact it has, because that could be quite soothing. That would be one thing. And I'd like to ask every listener to notice how much their body calmed and relaxed when I spoke at that pace. Now, there'll be 10% of them who didn't because their adrenaline and cortisol levels are so high. They're just going, can you speed it up, please? <laughs> it's just irritating. You're irritatingly slow. And I go, you know, it could be annoying. I'll see if I can speed it up for you. Sorry about that. I'll speed it up. How about we do that? And now I sped up the pace, but not the volume. There's something else that happens there. I was um, segueing on to another topic, but it's related. I was speaking at an event um, at a zoo last week and this brilliant young woman came up to me after the presentation and we were talking about influence and she said, you know, I am the only woman in, a, in an all-male um, exec team and I have noticed, which isn't an uncommon thing, I have noticed that when I, you know, disagree, get, a, get frustrated, get passionate, the view of me is kind of difficult hysterical emotional how would you how would you counter that and I went back to this piece of guidance that I think it was you that gave me in the first place which is something rather than go up you know when we are feeling agitated when we're feeling frustrated when we're feeling irritated rather than our voice going up an octave which for a lot of people shuts people down you know, there's there's gender bias there, but even move that aside, it just shuts people down. See if you can drop down, drop your shoulders down, drop your voice down, have it come from a place in your chest, slow it down. And there's a gravity and an authority to that that is way more powerful than speeding up. And also, and I hadn't thought about this before, but you're right, it's also incredibly calming for your nervous system rather than ramping up to come down. And so you have that, that double-barreled effect as in it is it brings down the, the energy of the conversation if it's got out of control and it also brings authority and gravity to the words that you say. Yep. And in fact, <clears throat> if I, one of the things I, when I'm, covering leadership with people, I often say my simple framework for great leadership is somebody who knows how to do authoritative and humble in the same minute and somebody who knows how to do credible and approachable in the same minute. And that's why the three seconds is so important for me to go, right now, where am I? Because if I've got too much adrenaline going, I'm going to revert to authoritative. But as that speeds up, the authoritative gets interpreted as aggressive or hostile or even bullying at worst. But if I, when I, if I can manage myself, observe myself, step out of the situation and go, hang on, Alan, just a second. Oxygen's the first thing a human being needs to stay alive. Take a breath. And if I can pause and breathe, now this is in the moment, 
science, when I pause and breathe and take a breath in, that alerts my sympathetic nervous system, which produces alertness. As I breathe out, that activates my parasympathetic nervous system, which creates a neurotransmitter called GABA and creates a state of calm. Now I'm alert, calm, alert, calm with every breath. And when I get too much adrenaline, I'm taking short breaths in the upper part of my chest and I'm never clearing out the carbon dioxide out of the lower part of my lungs. And my body after a while says, you can't have that much carbon dioxide in the system because when we breathe out the carbon dioxide, it, it removes the free radicals that are produced in the production of glutamate. And removing free radicals is the most important cleansing task of the entire human organism. Breathing is the most underestimated stress reduction tool. And it's so profound, so scientifically validated, and so simple. We underestimate it enormously. Now, if we did more breathing and more water, the brain would function more effectively because it's got more oxygen, more glutamate. The glutamate will produce clear thought. And it will, if we're breathing out long time, it's why when people go, ah, and we sigh, it's to get the carbon dioxide out to carry the free radicals out of our bodies. Um, free radicals are the most toxic substance we produce in the human body. And simple act of simple act of breathing and pausing. And then when I do breathe and pause, I go so duly. Now you'll notice I do so duly. 50% of my interactions with you. And it's so I remain connected with you. And if my attention goes out to you, my adrenal system says you're safe, speaks to the amygdala and lowers the adrenaline and cortisol. One of the biggest tools I learned from you on this topic um, that I've used time and time again in my life and in my career is, and it's related to cortisol, is the impact that it has on the quality of conversation that we are able to have, the quality of negotiation, the quality of conflict management, the impact that eye-to-eye -eye contact has. And you and I have talked about this many times. And, you know, I used, I'll let you go into it, but I used these tools when I was managing, you know, I was in my, remember me, I was in my, mid-twenties, like trying to manage and lead, you know, heads of banks. And I was winning and failing in, you know, equal measure, mainly the failing at trying to have important conversations without the adrenaline kind of testosterone spikes that would take to places that were, you know, was just unproductive and unhelpful and, and exhausting while still maintaining leadership and authority. Um, and one of the biggest ones you gave me was if there's a conversation or a human being that is very high octane, then never sit, never sit at a table looking them in the eye. And that sounds ridiculous. But if you have something important to talk about, 
you sit next to them and you move the problem. So you guys who are listening, you can't hear me, you can't see me, but rather than staring somebody in the eye and the problem sits between us, sit next to them and literally take the problem as an invisible ball in your hand and place it between the both of you, look at it and go, what are we going to do about this and point to it? So simple, but completely game-changing for me. Why does that work? Gosh, there's five ways I could answer that. It's such an important question. You and I have an alert system, which is our safety alarm system. So anytime my body or my brain or my senses, my eyes, my ears, sense that I'm in danger or there's threat, there's a piece of my brain called the amygdala and part of the brain stem. And between the two of them, they send off a fire alarm and go, ew, 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 ew. and they pump quarters. Well, they pump adrenaline first. If the, if the threat continues, uh, they back up the adrenaline with cortisol. But that, particular piece of the brain both both sides <laughs> how ironic what is that how ironic the that's extraordinarily ironic that's the message coming through my building to say they're about to do an alarm <laughs> well you brought that in <laughs> beautifully manifested that, right on time oh you could that'll now, that will enhance the memory of everybody who's listening because it's unusual, it's unique, it's novel, it's legitimate, um, it's loud, it's disruptive, what we were talking about. It creates an emotional sense in all of us because we're all programmed when we hear that to become alert. Um, so extraordinary gift from the universe. But we've got this alert system so that, and it sounds alarmed. And the alarm is we it pumps out adrenaline and cortisol. And the there are some things we can do in our interaction that calms and reassures the amygdala that we're okay. And Julie, one of them is if I sit I'm say I'm face to face, or let's say I'm on a phone, but when I'm on a phone, I'm imagining you're sitting in front of me with your phone. And I'm directly facing you. <clears throat> now, one of the preconditions of the amygdala sending out cortisol and adrenaline <clears throat> is that if my eyes are in the centre of the socket and your eyes are in the centre of the socket, or my eyes are in the centre of the socket and I move forward and I'm sensing some sort of threat, the eyes in the centre of the socket increase the likelihood of the amygdala getting alerted. So I've spent the last 30 years of my life practicing never having my eye in the centre of the socket as a negotiator. I've always got my body slightly tilted, slightly angled. And I do, most of the time when I can, sit in chairs that swivel so that I can just angle my body 5 to 10 degrees off centre with you and have my head facing halfway between where my body is and you. And my eye making direct eye contact with you. But that means my eye is way out of the centre of the socket. 
which sends a message to the amygdala, everything's okay. It's amazing how replicable this tool is. Like I've used it, it works again and again. You, you know, you try and have a high intensity conversation with someone, you're facing them, eye in the center of the socket, shoulders facing shoulders, front on, and watch it escalate. Like, cause both of you go into combat, like eye on eye, I'm looking at you, combat mode. Turn your body or sit next to that human being, pull the problem out from between you and put it on the table and go, what, what should we do about this? What do you think? Changes the game. If I, Julie, if I can be interacting with you and you deliver the problem, and if we watch carefully, most people when they deliver the problem, they actually, it's like they've got the problem in, in their hand and they'll deliver it towards your point at you. Now, every time that happens, I just put my right hand out and welcome a soft, open hand and take the problem and move it to the side and ask the person, can, Julie, can you say more about that? Now, when I say, can you say more about that? I'm seeking permission. I'm getting you to talk more. And my hands are directing your eyes toward the problem, not toward me. So for those of you who can't see what Alan just did, um, he, you know, as we do when we have a problem, you put hand gestures towards, towards you, pointing at you or, or pointing my hands at you. He reached over, pulled like an imaginary problem out of my hand gestures, moved it to moved his hands slightly to the, I'm going to say to the left or to the right. And then he looked at the problem and looked at me and pointed to the problem and was like, can you tell me more about this? Which then takes the problem. The problem is not you. The problem is not me. The problem is not between us. The problem is over here and we are together in a solution. Incredible. Like just feel your physiology calm. It is. It it changes the central nervous system immediately. It just changes it straight away. Now, link that to two things that are completely unconnected. Your comment about getting up in front of an audience to speak, which produces nervousness for a lot of people. If I can do that indirect movement, that actually calms the central nervous system and stimulates the cranial nerves which allows my brain and my mind and my jaw and my tongue to work more effectively and my salivary glands because the cranial nerves control all that. But if the blood is in my periphery and my central nervous system send a message and stimulating my periphery, my legs and arms so I can run off I, the cranial nerves don't have nearly the effect. So it, it means we've, we, we, if with awareness and breath and recognising in this moment I have the critical choice point of regulating and improving the experience I'm having. And I don't have to wait for tomorrow. I don't have to wait for somebody else to do it. I don't have to wait for the policy to be improved. I don't have to wait for the legislation. I don't have to wait for anybody to approve it. I can actually take that choice and liberate me in the moment. Or let me do it this way. Proximity, how close I am to you. The angle and the primary angle to have a problem when we're negotiating is 45 degrees from us. My right hand picks the problem up and automatically, and I've practiced it 
thousands and thousands of times. You have practiced moving a problem out from between you and another human being to a 45 degree angle thousands of times. I've consciously practiced that for years. Wow. Julie, to this day, every interaction I have in every negotiation, everybody puts their their primary gestures are between the shoulder blades, which means my gestures are at you. Now, if I get the proximity wrong and I get I move towards you too quickly, it'll alert your amygdala. But if I keep the right distance, I have the angle, I reduce the tension. And if you watch when I reduce tension in my body, my height lowers. That's proximity, angle, height, tension, and I'm on the path. You know, the other one that you gave me that I used sparingly and and usually when other tools that I had weren't working and again you know to I was smaller than the people I was dealing with younger um and so I needed some tools and and less experienced so I needed some tools on my side um the other one that I use which I've spoken about on the podcast before which was walking taking somebody for a walk or the one that I've spoken about many times on the podcast is taking somebody for a game of basketball now I am no basketball player And I don't look like a basketball player. I don't play like a basketball player. (laughs) But I can shoot some hoops if given a ball in my hand. And for conversations that I thought were going to be particularly intense, particularly difficult, and when I had the relationship to be able to do so, I would say, hey, you know what, let's let's not sit here. Let's not sit here. I don't know about you. I haven't been outside all day. Let's Let's go shoot some hoops. We've got a few things we need to work through. And the act of not only being side by side, because you're kind of side by side when you're shooting hoops, but having something that is relieving tension, like literally our body's moving as we're doing it, would make a conversation that would have blown six ways to heaven, calm, collected, and, and flow, free flow. So again, I can't, you know, these tools, they work. Um, I've used them time, time and time again. Another tool that I have talked about a lot um, that I learned from you that I've used a lot is the tool of first position, second position and third position. Um, And I think that I first heard you speak on that probably 10 years ago and I've used it hundreds of times then. Can you talk to, to what those positions are and why it's so invaluable to know how to move between them? Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, may I go back to your walk and your basketball? Because since we've talked last, I actually now have better scientific understanding about what's going on. And the obvious thing is adrenaline and cortisol are in our system to give us energy. And if we're getting stressed and agitated, it just means I've got too much adrenaline and not enough movement or usage of the energy. So if I get up and go for a walk or go shoot some baskets, I've actually, now my muscles are using the adrenaline that have been pumped into them. So I'm I'm utilising the adrenaline. So that's going to have a better effect on me. I, by the very act of walking out to the basketball court, I have introduced the production of the neurotransmitter in my brain and throughout my nervous system of serotonin. And serotonin is the chemical in our body 
that's responsible for producing joy. So if I were to do, uh, in fact, uh, during COVID with people having stress levels that I think are uh, evidence that we have a, a global epidemic of crisis fatigue, if we were to take a five-minute walk three times a day and reactivate, use the adrenaline, reactivate the serotonin and then come back to work, we'd have dopamine here in the right proportion to do good thinking. Uh, just, it's 100% predictable. Julie, the, the reason I'm a micro-behavioural neuroscientist and linguist is that I truly deeply believe it is the tiny things we can do that stimulate positive brain chemistry, not negative brain chemistry, that changes our lives and the world. Just so simple. And if we did nothing else, if we did nothing else but breathe more consciously and breathe out longer than we breathe in, take water at least once every two hours, even if it's just a mouthful. Um, went for a walk two or three times a day and took in oxygen and allowed myself to widen my vision as I do when I go outside walking. My peripheral vision stimulates my parasympathetic nervous system which produces GABA and reduces me into a calm state. It, you know, we, we just have to do those little things and all of that will mean I'll sleep better tonight because I haven't got adrenaline and cortisol pumping that keeps me awake thinking about everything I was wanting to do today that I didn't get to. You're taking me in, in directions in my brain. I have another question, but I'm going to pause it. I want to go back to the first position, second position. Third position because I think it relates beautifully to what you're talking about. And as a tool, it's very usable. Julie, I'm, I'm either, I have, I often describe the human body as a car. I've got three gears. Um, Self-orientation is where my attention is on me. Um, I'm inside my body. I'm feeling what I'm feeling. I'm chatting away inside my head about my point of view. And I'm mostly making statements. And I'm moving faster than I do when I'm in the other two gears. The second gear is when I'm other-oriented. And I'm listening to the fact you give me a question about walking and basketball and then about self and others. And I then go, what do I do here? Purely want both of these answered. Do I forget the walk and basketball or do I go to self and others? Now that's a conversation inside my head about Julie's needs. That's a different brain function. That's where I'm being considered curious and actually trying to imagine what you might want. Other orientation is where my attention is out on you. And that's where rapport and empathy and understanding and, and collegiality occurs. The third position is almost like I'm sitting up on the tower or I'm in a helicopter up above myself watching me interact with you. And in my other orientation, I've got you here in front of me 
and I've got thousands of people around the world who are tuning in and listening who I'm trying to consider and you're considering. Now, when I'm self-oriented, I haven't got a clue who's going to listen to it in the future. When I'm self-oriented, I'm going to interrupt you with the things I want to put forward or diminish what you've said so that it strengthens mine. Whereas I'll never do that if I'm other-oriented. I'm always going to consider you or check in. And even you'll notice that when I had to make the choice between walk and basketball and self and other, I didn't make the decision without checking with you if I could go back to that. So it's that other-oriented that builds the rapport, but it's the outside helicopter that allows me to consider the big complex world that we live in and the whole system. And if I can be aware of where I am and which gear I'm in and just stop and put my foot in the clutch and change gears. I learned it in 1982, Julie, and there's not been a day that I haven't stopped and said, where are you, Alan? Which gear? Where do you need to be? Where's the other person? Where do you need to be? And if I run into you at any point in time and you're in self-orientation, I know I'm not going there, I'm going to other or collective. Because that will provide you with space to be you, contribute you, without me interfering with your process or contaminating your process. Yeah. Where I have used that the most, the concept of first, second and third, as a reference for where I'm at and how productive my energy is being um, is on stage. When I first started speaking in front of people and, you know, bear in mind, you don't start by speaking in front of hundreds or thousands. You, you start by, you know, your knee shaking and your voice breaking when you have to speak to 10. That's, that's where most of us begin. Not everybody, but most. And when I, that the concept of first, second and third was really helpful to me because when I was in first position, all I can hear is my own internal monologue. All I can hear is the monkey. You're going to screw this up. You're going to forget this bit. Um, you know, do not die. Oh my gosh, you're dying. All you can hear is the alarm bells in your own head and you have no energy left to consider anybody else in the room. They are just witness to your car crash. And, you know, when you move into second position, when you feel yourself shift into second position, th these are my words, you, you, you will you know, probably have a much deeper insights on this or certainly have. Um, when I feel myself going to second position, I am able to look and see the people I am talking to and consider how they might be feeling. So I can look at one individual and go, oh, he's moved forward. That really resonated with him. Or this person, this person's kind of furrowing their eyebrow. I think I might need to add some more detail there. You know, I can I can include other people's experience in my experience. So that's when I know that I'm in second. When I'm in third, I mean, that is the that is the flow zone. That is the zone that we all try and reach as communicators, which is when I'm not obsessing over my experience and the, the words in my head that I'm saying. I'm not obsessing because the thing about being in second is it can work beautifully, but you can also get derailed because you look at one human being and they fall asleep or, they're, you know, they're frowning at you like they hate you. 
um, or they hate every word that's come out of your mouth and you can easily derail back to first. And so where you want to end up is move yourself out of first into second by look by consciously looking at other human beings in the room and going, okay, I see her, she's smiling. And then move into third, which as you said, is the helicopter piece where it's, I am not paying attention to my own internal experience um, or listening to the words in my head. I am not obsessing over any one individual or group of individuals in this room and, and paying attention to what they're doing and allowing it to dictate my state. I am helicoptering up and I am moving with the, with what is best for the whole entity here. What is best for the whole room? And I'm moving with that. And that is where you aspire to get to as a communicator, where you can move with a room and be moved by a room without being derailed by individual voices or the voice inside your own head. Um, how do you... How do you move between, let's say that you're in first position, how do you move to second and how do you move to third? Julie, I, I think I, I have a concern that if I answer that question, I'll take attention from the people's brains to what an explicit explanation you just gave. Only as one who listens very carefully to your words and tries to apply them. It was just beautifully articulated. The thing I'd like to add to that description is when you talked about your monologue and your, your, your conversation with yourself that was quite critical and self-absorbing your, using your words, and then all of a sudden you realise that there are human beings in front of you and you start seeing the audience and connecting. The thing I'd like to suggest, particularly when I'm walking on stage in front of a group or whether I'm walking in front of a large group of people who I'm facilitating, um, my very first 60 seconds, Julie, is, and, and I haven't, I've been practicing it for 35, 40 years, um, in fact, this is my 40th year. I haven't had a monologue going on inside my head when I walked in front of an audience for a very long time because I've taken care of all that in my rehearsal and my preparation and it's it's gone. I'm, I'm, I've mastered the art of establishing the emotional mental state I want to be in and I'd like the audience to see and experience me and and that's my focus before I walk on. How do I get into that exquisite state? Once I walk in front of that audience, I just scan backward and forward across the group and I look for the friendly eyes. I've heard you mention this, the lighthouse, the concept of the, the lighthousing. And I look for the, the receptive people in the audience, the friendly eyes, and if I've said a few things and I've got a head nod, I go from one head nod to the next and they become my lighthouse. And for the first five minutes, they're actually the only people I connect with in other orientation. The rest of them I'm connecting with as if they're one whole group. And I believe the mastery of flow is to have my peripheral vision on and my peripheral awareness 
so that I consider the group I'm with to be a single organism first, a group of a set of subgroups second, and a whole lot of individual and unique human beings third. But I consider the group as a community. And to do that, this is going back to your question about the eyes, I, I practice endlessly to making sure I keep my peripheral vision on. So that if I'm making contact with a person in the audience, in the middle of the audience, on the left-hand side of the room, my body is always pointing my foot, my right foot's always pointing to the right-hand side of the room, so that I never forget to include non-verbally the people on the other side of the room. And then if I go to the left-hand side of the room, my non-verbals open up on my other side. So that I let everybody know that they're being included with my peripheral attention and my widened gestures that go from the center out. The peripheral vision means that I am in the helicopter. The peripheral vision means that I can be in flow because I'm attentive and aligned and considering everybody. And it's not that I'm in flow, it's that we're in flow. It's, it's the magic of being able to create usness in our relationship is the term I made up. Is that the experience I have when I'm with Julie, Alan can't produce on his own. And it's the energy that you and I create between us that's ours, not Alan's nor Julie's, that I think is the magic of flow. And this, just speaking to the, the lighthouse part again, because if there's anyone listening that has a presentation to give, be it to five, be it to 500, this tool is just so practical to find your lighthouses, two or three people who are smiling, nodding, sitting forward, speak to them for the first five minutes while your physiology, and I use this all the time, while your physiology calms down. I mean, I wish I was as masterful as you in being able to calm my physiology down before I hit the stage. Usually it takes about five five or so minutes for my physiology to calm down having hit the stage. Um, but once, speak to them, and then when your physiology calms down, then you can move into third position. Then you can start to include the whole room again because you're, you know, you have regulated yourself. And those of you who are listening that are finding the, the whole peripheral vision or peripheral body language difficult to conceive via audio, which I can very much imagine, and I've seen you do it many, many times, so I, I have a visual. What I want you to think about is if you think about a human being at the front of the room, so you're sat in the audience, a human being at the front of the room, and they're talking to one side of the room, so the far side, someone's asked a question at the far side of the room, and while they're talking, trying to attempt to answer that question, their body is slightly shifted in the other direction and maybe their hand is up, simultaneously engaging the other side of the room. It's a difficult one to, to imagine, but conversely, imagine the difference between that, someone keeping their body open to the whole room while talking to one side, to the person who is at the front of the room with their back to half the room, talking to the other half of the room. The inclusion and the engagement is completely, completely different. And that's being very conscious of how you use your body. Julie, if I may, at this point in time, just mention um, in 19, I think it was 1982 or 83, I did a 40 day facilitation course in America 
and there was an extraordinary woman who was a participant in the course and a teacher on the course. And her name was Sally Kirkland. And Sally was the principal teacher at the Strasbourg School of Drama, which is probably the world's leading method acting school in the world. And um, Sally taught us that skill, is to make sure that your eye, your head, your shoulders and your feet were always in different locations, never parallel feet on a stage. And now as, you know, as a behavioral scientist, 40 years later, I look at it and think, my goodness, she's, she's creating brain integration there at just an extraordinary level that allows the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system to operate in harmony, which means we don't have an overactive alert system and an exhausted, relaxed and calm system. Or everything we've talked about is about making sure that if the adrenaline's too active and the cortisol's too active, and if they're too active, the dopamine will be too active and I'm slightly manic. And that every technique we've talked about is about regulating the dopamine, the adrenaline, the cortisol back to a functional level so that our best thinking in the front of our brain behind our forehead has the opportunity to do its very best and most complex thinking, make our best decisions and include all the variables and all the stakeholders that need to be included. And they take oxygen and water and plenty of exercise. My... My final question for you is I feel like we just keep coming back to these beautiful loops of, you know, our primary function as communicators, as leaders, negotiators, is to regulate our state. And to regulate our state, we need to be present, breathe, be in dynamic with another human being to co-regulate or try and be in dialogue with ourselves to co-regulate. And if we can do that collectively, that brings the adrenaline and cortisol of an entire system down, which enables us to have more constructive, calm, um, co-beneficial conversations and outcomes. But what I, what I want to finish with now is something I've wondered all the way through this conversation, which is how do you prepare? You know, you, you go into, I've, I've never seen you overwhelmed in in my viewpoint i i've never seen you overwhelmed looking anxious nervous and you have negotiated huge high stakes multi-party complex conversations between nations where the outcomes are you know of significant importance what do you do to prepare your state, be it prior to a conversation, a negotiation, or a presentation that will give you the best chance of showing up the way that you choose to show up? I work at living a healthy life. If we can be healthy and our interactions are healthy and our outcomes are healthy, we've, we've, we've done well. And for that to happen, I need... Oxygen, water, 
walking, I need sleep. And if I want sleep, I've got to have done enough exercise to burn up the adrenaline and cortisol that I produce through the day so that I don't produce too much dopamine. I need to reduce sugar, sucrose, from my diet. And I'm actually on the periphery of a project at the moment looking at global climate change and global health. And my proposition to this project is threefold. But, and one of them is if we can reduce sucrose. Now, sucrose goes to the pancreas. It makes the pancreas work hard, and it means our, ex, our energy goes up and down. And it's a form of sugar that doesn't get into the brain directly. Glucose is the only form. And what, where do we find sucrose? What is sucrose in? Um, if I put a spoonful of sugar in my tea, um, if you buy any prepackaged item from a supermarket that you put into your mouth, the likelihood of that having elevated amounts of sugar, sucrose, even if it's bread, is very high. Now, and according to some of the research, Sucrose is the most addictive substance and sugar cane is the largest, most prolific crop that's produced on the planet. And if we could reduce our intake of sucrose and increase, just replace it with anything, but particularly with grain. If every day I wake up, I go straight out, I have water, and I have a spoonful of sunflower seeds. Now, the sunflower seeds concentrate carbohydrate, converts to glucose, goes to my brain, and it's in producing clear thought within minutes. If I go and have a cup of tea or coffee and put sugar in it, that sugar will never get to my brain. Well, that's not true. It will, but it goes through a slower conversion process. And the sugar will mean that my energy levels will go up and down. Whereas the grain, the glucose, will slip over, over time more consistently and keep the energy more stable. If we could, uh, managing our blood sugar level is, our water and our blood sugar levels, absolute paramount importance. I, I never go more than two hours without putting something in my mouth. So I'm, a, I'm a small food consuming grazer. Um, and very low sugar content. Um, and I think the low sugar is, has been one of the great shifts in my life in the last 10, 20 years. Um, I exercise every day. Um, as you know, I've been a distance runner. I have run 11 ultra marathons, 24 hours twice. And you learn in that process how to control your thinking and your emotions and and you've got to learn how to regulate your blood sugar level or you you don't make it there's simple things that are applicable to absolutely every one of us and purely the biggest breakthrough in my own mental and emotional state improvement is that because i operate with my peripheral vision on almost all the time 
I have very, very little internal monologue ever because I keep my attention out and wide. And it's the peripheral vision and the quietness inside my head that is probably the largest factor to my success. You know, I'm actually, I'm better under the pressure of those large negotiations than I am small ones. Yeah, I've just so regulated, I've practiced self-regulation, but not by sitting down meditating. And I don't, I have meditated a lot, um, but I now try to lead life as a meditation. And if I have my peripheral vision on, I'm aware of the whole environment I'm in, there's no chatter. And no chatter is our pathway to a much more peaceful world. You know, someone asked me recently about, you know, what's the biggest lesson I had to learn as a as a parent? And the answer I gave was it's the same single biggest lesson I've ever had to learn as a leader. It's the same biggest lesson I've had to learn as a partner and a wife. And, and it's self-regulation. You, There is nothing that can be done unless you can regulate yourself because if you can regulate yourself, somebody can co-regulate with you and you both stand a chance. The minute we connect co-regulate we can so co-choose those critical choice points every second it's such a liberating phenomena and every one of us has the capacity to do it every moment every three seconds well alan my friend it is a pleasure and life affirming and changing every single time I, I get to chat with you every time I see you speak I've been at the back of the room of many of your presentations and every single time I walk away with something that I use throughout my life in all aspects so thank you thank you for coming today thank you for the work thank you for being first being the first Julie, I, I can't believe I was the first that is such a joy and such a privilege it's such a joy for me to have people around in the world like you who are doing what you're doing and inviting people like me to be part of the conversation um, that really is asking questions about how to be better, kinder, more considered, more creative and, and more co-creating together. It's just a privilege to be part of what you create. And I deeply thank you for the opportunity. You know, we often talk about on this podcast, the the intention of the podcast is that there are three buckets of influence. The The first one is how you influence yourself and the stories inside your head. Second one is how you influence other people on a one-to-one basis or a one-to-a-few if you're speaking in front of people. And the third one is how you influence at scale, movements, spreading messages, ideas, um, getting people to buy in at scale. And none of the last two happen unless you are a master at the first. And, you know, you are one of the truest masters of, of all of them, but starting with the first. So thank you again. Julie, my gratitude back. It's been a joy. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.